Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello! Welcome back to New Scientist Weekly, your curated selection of the week's science stories. I'm Timothy Revel in New York. And I'm Christy Taylor, also in New York. This week, we're meeting the people who perhaps most stand to benefit from successful brain-computer interfaces, those who have few other modes of communication, whether because of injuries or conditions like ALS. We're also reinventing a 3,000-year-old Egyptian perfume. And are beer goggles real? A question that's as old as fermentation, though much older than goggles. (laughs) Plus, we meet the spiders that plunder like pirates. Avast! But first up, research into the genetic diversity of our early ancestors has reached a pretty amazing conclusion. And that is that nearly a million years ago, our ancestors may have just narrowly avoided going extinct. The early human population might have dropped to about as low as 1,300 individual early humans and then stayed roughly that sized for more than 100,000 years. Now, this sort of phenomenon, it's what's known as a population bottleneck And we know that they happened to our ancestors before, but this new finding would be one of the most stark. It's worth saying, too, that there is some evidence that contradicts this, so not everyone in the field is convinced that the finding will stand up to scrutiny. So here to break it all down with us is reporter Michael LePage. Hi, Michael. Hi. So how was the discovery made? So essentially, a team in China analysed the variations in the genomes of thousands of people who are alive today, And they did this try and work out how the size of the human population has changed in the very distant past. Now, as you said, we know there have been lots of population bottlenecks in the more recent past as humans evolved and moved around the world. So their analysis suggests there was this really drastic event around 900,000 years ago where the population of our ancestors plummeted by 98% down to a point where there were just these 1,300 individuals or so still having children. And the team's hypothesis is that this was a result of climate change, that there was a sudden climate change cooling rather than warming, and that this led to severe droughts worldwide that led to this sort of plummet in the population. Absolutely wild. I mean, 1,300 individuals is probably about as many people as there are in the building we are currently in today. (laughs) Really hard to imagine. These population bottlenecks, why are they important? What, What do they tell us? So biologists are interested in these population bottlenecks because they're the genetic signature of these major events in in evolutionary history, other species as well as ours, of course. And so bottlenecks occur when an existing population is reduced in size. Now, that could be some kind of disaster, as we've just talked about. It's also often when a small number of individuals leave a population and found a new one. So that's a sort of the founder effect. And basically, when you've got a few individuals giving rise to a new population, there's this loss of genetic diversity. And that's what the the team's been looking for. You know, we talked about other bottleneck. So for instance, there was this major bottleneck when a small number of modern humans left Africa 60,000 years ago or so. And that's why there's still so much more genetic diversity among those who remained in Africa, those of African descent, than those from the rest of the world combined. But going back to this idea of this massive bottleneck, you know, again, 1300 individuals about 900,000 years ago, 
Is this based on new evidence of some kind? Well, it's partly that we've now got a lot more genome sequences of living people to analyse. But what this team did is they developed this new way of looking for these kind of variations and how they've changed. And they say that their method is better than the ones used by other teams and that this is why they've discovered this previously unknown bottleneck so far back in our prehistory. So we did refer to the fact that maybe there's some disagreement with this conclusion. This is a pretty big dramatic finding, but one that other people are maybe finding a bit premature, Michael? What's going on there? Yeah, so I I think the other researchers I've been in contact with, they're not saying it's completely wrong and dismissing it out of hand, but they also sort of saying, well, this clashes with some other lines of evidence, in particular with sort of some fossil evidence. So the team in China are saying that at the time this bottleneck occurred, there's very little fossil evidence of early humans, but there's a, a couple of researchers here in London who say this just isn't the case. So they've put together this list of sites in Africa and Eurasia where there is evidence of early humans at this time. Yeah, so obviously if there were lots of humans about, then not really a bottleneck. Well, it rules out, if there were lots of humans at that time, it rules out the idea of a global catastrophe that wiped out all early humans all across the world. But here's Mm. the thing, you know, genetic history is written by the survivors. If you don't have living descendants, it's like you never existed. So there's this other possibility is that there were lots of early humans alive at this time, but that only a small group of them were our ancestors and survived and gave rise to us. And what's really intriguing is that this bottleneck coincides with the time where we think we evolved a new chromosome. So we humans have 23 pairs of chromosomes, but our ancient ancestors have 24 pairs, like chimpanzees and gorillas still do. And in us, at some point, two chromosomes fused together to form what's now chromosome two. So the fact that this bottleneck occurred at the same time, it might mean that basically a small group of early humans broke away, they evolved a different chromosome, stopped breeding with others. And this could be a speciation event rather than some sort of global climate catastrophe. But I think this is really far from certain. I mean, I think biologists are going to be arguing about this for years to come. And as we get more and more genomes to analyse, the picture should become clearer. When you think about brain implants, maybe you think of people seamlessly controlling robots and cyborg bodies with their minds, or maybe fully immersing themselves in virtual worlds like the Matrix. But the most likely use case in the near term is much more pragmatic. What if we could communicate with people who can't use other means? Technology reporter Jeremy Sue recently looked at the work of one company to develop a brain implant for this very purpose. Hey, Jeremy. Hi, Christy. So you recently had a conversation with someone who was using a brain implant to communicate. Tell us all about that. Yeah, I got the chance to chat with Rodney Gorham, an Australian who is one of the first people in the world to have a brain implant from the Brooklyn-based tech firm Synchron. So we used the messaging service WhatsApp, and I was uh, typing away on my laptop as we chatted about various topics like our you know, favorite live music experiences. <laughs> But Rodney can't type with his fingers because he has extensive paralysis in his arms and legs from the neurodegenerative disease ALS. In fact, he can't even speak, so he uses a brain-computer interface instead. That sounds extremely surreal, Jeremy. How does he control this interface? So instead of manually typing, uh, Rodney first looks at certain letters on a virtual keyboard displayed by his touchscreen laptop. 
while an external eye tracking device follows his gaze and highlights the letter he's looking at. Then he focuses his thoughts on performing certain muscle movements. Now his muscles don't actually move, but the signal from his brain directs the implant to make a tapping action on the highlighted letter. And thus he types the letter. That's really cool. So how quickly was he able to communicate using this? I mean, it sounds like a very elaborate kind of process to do a single letter. In terms of average speed with Synchron's device, we're talking about something like 16 characters per minute. So Mm -hmm. nowhere near as fast as typical conversations. Mm -hmm. Still, that's pretty incredible to go from effectively not being able to speak to then communicating at 16 characters a minute. And presumably there's some sort of clever predictive technology that they could add in to help him get more out of those 16 characters, you know, work out what he wants to say before he has to type it all in. What about the implant itself? How does that actually work? Yeah, the brain implant itself sits inside a vein called the superior sagittal sinus that runs along the top midline part of the brain. And Synchron can reach that surgically by inserting its device through the jugular vein. And although the brain implant is not actually touching brain cells directly, it's kind of close enough to sort of listen in on nearby brain activity. That's really cool, sort of like spying on your brain a little bit, listening, listening in. Amazing. Right. It seems like there's there's so much activity around brain computer interface companies at the moment. Like famously, Elon Musk, he's got Neuralink, which is a company that seems to be really focusing more on augmenting the human experience and human capabilities with AI, though they're still a long way from that. And then you've also got companies like Synchron who seem to be focused much more on this medical side of it where there's a medical need like Rodney has. Is that about right that there's these sort of two camps and the way they're tackling it? Yeah, that's exactly right. Another difference between some of these competing approaches is where exactly the implant goes. So some groups are trying to get more direct access to the brain by sticking electrodes directly into brain cells. That can make it much easier to detect and interpret brain activity, but it also requires intensive open skull surgery. By comparison, Synchron is using a less invasive approach. The trade-off there is that it means the device is farther from the brain, and so its engineers have to work harder to really isolate and distinguish those brain signals that can become brain implant commands. So despite that kind of trade-off, does it seem like that approach is working out for Synchron? Yeah, this approach has probably helped Synchron to get ahead of competitors by winning earlier regulatory approval to run human clinical trials in the U.S. and Australia. So right now, the company is preparing for its next big clinical trial, which is really designed to provide evidence showing how its brain implant can make a big difference in people's lives. Before we go any further, I have some breaking news about our other podcasts. Did you know, Christy, that the Dead Planet Society saved the world this week? What? Not a single gravitational wave apocalypse or sun murder? I can't I can't believe it. They need a medal. Yeah, we're going to have to have a word with them, I think. That's not <laughs> what they're meant to be doing. Instead, this week, they explored what it would take to stop an asteroid. And in classic Dead Planet Society style, they uh, explored everything from a giant Captain America style shield to a trampoline that bounces back the asteroid from whence it came. 
So that's already in the New Scientist podcast feed, ready for you to listen whenever you have a moment. I will have to do that. And if you're interested in rekindling some wonder and awe in the world around us, I had a chance to interview science journalist Ed Yong about his incredible book, An Immense World, which is now out in paperback. It's all about the sensory worlds that other animals inhabit, what it's like, as best as we can understand anyway, to be a bat or a shark or a bee or even your pet dog. Birds often have eyes on the sides of their heads, so they will see a panoramic wraparound view of the world. They will see this extra dimension of colors, just in terms of vision and just in terms of birds, like some of the animals that we're most familiar with. The world around us looks utterly, utterly different. That's a really great interview, and that will be coming out on Tuesday. And if you're looking for even more wonder, well, New Scientist is hosting the world's greatest festival of ideas and discoveries in just a few short weeks. At the beginning of October, online or in person at Excel London, we've just got an amazing collection of speakers across five stages, covering a pretty amazing array of subjects. Got deep oceans, distant galaxies, mental health, meteorites, and more. And Tim will be there. Indeed, I will. I'll be talking about the history of mathematics to anyone who will listen. (laughs) Check out the programme and get your tickets at newscientist.com slash live. Next, we've got freelance journalist Sophia Qualia with us this week, who's sniffed out some research about recreating 3,000-year-old smells. And these smells, they may just tell us something about trade in ancient Egypt. Hi, Sophia. Hiya. Actually, I have a question for you. What perfume would you like to be buried in? (laughs) Uh, That's not a question I've been asked a lot or really was expecting. I guess I don't really wear that much perfume or cologne whilst alive. So maybe I would just go with my natural, though somewhat decaying smell. Uh, What what about you? I don't know about me, (laughs) but I know that the noble woman Senet Ne from 1450 BC, who was buried in the Valley of the Kings in Egypt, when she was mummified, she was lathered in a sophisticated concoction of beeswax, bitumen, oil, and tree resin. That sounds potent, I guess. I like the idea of tree resin, but bitumen sounds kind of petrochemically to me. Yes, actually. I didn't personally smell this, but here's one of the researchers behind the discovery, Barbara Huber, explaining what it smells like to her. The dominant smell, I would say, is like this kind of strong pine-like woody scent of the conifers. But then it's also a little bit intermingled with a more sweet undertone of the beeswax. Then we have this kind of strong, smoky scent of the bitumen. It's a little bit like, you know, this freshly laid tar on a street when you have like this very strong smell. And then like we have some balsamic notes as well. Uh, but in the end, it's a really rich composition. Okay. I think listening to that now kind of sounds like a fine wine, but definitely much better than when you first described this smell. <laughs> but Sophia, how do we know exactly what this noble woman could have smelled like if she was buried 3,500 years ago. I mean, I don't imagine we're going around sniffing mummies at this point in archaeological research. No, no, not really. Researchers from the Max Planck Institute of Geoanthropology were able to get a whiff of what perfume Senate Ney was embalmed with by using state-of-the-art tech and analyzing the chemistry of the balm residue found in two of the canobic jars from the ritual, basically the jars containing her mummified organs. 
all of this is already super impressive because this equipment was actually excavated from the site of her burial in 1900. So it's been sitting in the museum since. And so I'm assuming that, you know, to be buried in this way and smothered in all this perfume, she must have been quite rich and fancy. Yeah, we can surprisingly learn loads from something as invisible as scent. First off, this new insight teaches us a little bit more about what the burial process was like in general. Here, for instance, they found the bombs were slightly different in the two jars. So maybe they were burying different organs with different bombs. We don't really know. And the discovery also gives us more clues about, like you said, Tim, what Senate life and social circle could have been like. The fact that they're using all these diverse ingredients to bury her means that she must have been, yeah, quite fancy, quite close with the pharaohs. Here's what Huber had to say about that. For us, what was really striking was the complexity of the bomb. We assumed to have like, you know, perhaps some uh, specific substances, but like having all these different things uh, mixed together in one bomb, we didn't expect that. And so far, what we have found out is that it's the most complex bomb for this period. And that was also very like surprising for us. But what's really crazy here is that some of these ingredients, like the conifer tree resins found, which were larch resin and then either resin from pistachio trees or damar gum, the scientists aren't really sure which of the two exactly, these ingredients aren't actually from Egypt. Mm, So you mean they had to travel or trade to get their hands on them? Yeah, larch resin comes from larches, but those mainly grow in the northern Mediterranean. So do pistachios. And damar gum is another type of resin obtained specifically from trees in Southeast Asian tropical forests. So if these really are the products that were used for Senate Nye's death, then it means the ancient Egyptians had really far-reaching trade routes all around the world. Wow, that's really kind of stunning as far as like insights we can get from one person's dead body. Is this kind of early for a trade network to be that extensive? Yeah. So there was another research paper out earlier this year that also spotted damar gum in mummification bomb, but that person was embalmed like a thousand years after Senate and I. So yeah, it would be super early and much more research is needed to confirm this. In general, Huber's team still has other questions too. For example, they want to figure out whether there's like actual reason for using these specific products in the first place. Maybe other than smelling nice, they're also antimicrobial. We know very little about the burial processes in Egypt during that time anyways, so hopefully this is a good step in the right direction. Hey Tim, have you ever heard of the term beer goggles? I have, uh, though of course I've never experienced them myself. Never. I've I've read about them in a few scientific journals and very highbrow magazines. (laughs) It's when uh, Homo sapiens, they become a little too in intoxicated on alcohol, and then they experience this unusual side effect where they find other homo sapiens a little more attractive than they would otherwise. Mm -hmm. Is that about right? That's the popular theory, yeah. But according to a new study out this week, it might actually not be a thing after all. Even Mm. if you think you have strong opinions about how attractive people are or are not, drinking alcohol may not actually change how you feel. Reporter Chen Lai joins us from London to help us peer through the bleary eyes of inebriated flirts. Hey, Chen. Hello. So bring us the science. What's the truth about beer goggles? Yeah, so there seems to be a handful of studies that support the idea of beer goggles. But according to Molly Bouldering at Stanford University in California, these studies show just a small effect and often inconsistent. 
and they usually involve having people drink alcohol by themselves. All right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, While some people do drink alone in real life, drinking is often something you do with friends. So if beer goggles exist, solo drinking isn't the scenario under which you'd want to be testing that. Yeah, exactly. So Bodring and her colleague Michael Sayat at the University of Pittsburgh decided to investigate the idea in a more social setting. They recruited 18 pairs of friends, all of whom were heterosexual men, and got them to rate the attractiveness of 16 women they didn't know, based on photos and videos. And they were also asked to choose the four they'd most like to meet in a potential future study. The men were given straight cranberry juice to drink and repeated the first activity again. The experiment was then repeated on a different day with the same men judging a different set of women. This time around, they were given a vodka cranberry, which was mixed with enough alcohol to raise their blood alcohol concentration to around 0.08%. That's the point at which you're not allowed to operate a vehicle in the US and a few other countries around the world. Okay, so vodka cranberries drunk. Um, I mean, not exactly beer goggles if you're drinking vodka cranberries. (laughs) Not in the strictest sense, anyway. But did the researchers find some evidence of the effect? Vodka cranberry goggles, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... It turns out that drinking alcohol didn't affect how the men rated the women's attractiveness at all. But after drinking just the cranberry juice, some of the men said that they would most like to meet women who they didn't necessarily find attractive. However, after drinking the cocktail with a bit of alcohol, they were almost twice as likely to want to meet those who they deemed the most attractive. I see. So am I correct in hearing that instead of uh, beer goggles, vodka goggles, instead of that changing how attractive the men found the women... Alcohol actually just gave them the courage to want to meet those that they already found the most attractive without any alcohol. Yeah, that's exactly right. So instead of beer goggles, alcohol might actually give you a bit of Dutch courage. Though it is important to caveat that the sample size was quite small and the researchers do hope to explore these ideas in a larger, more diverse sample to see if these findings do hold true. All right. There's uh, been plenty of other fascinating science stories this week, too. And one that particularly caught my eye was about the gut microbiomes of tall people. So we already know that bigger animals, like elephants, have a greater variety of bacteria hanging out in their intestinal tracts. Well, it turns out that larger people, this is also true for them, too. So in a study that looked at thousands of humans of different heights, being taller was associated with a greater diversity in the gut microbiome. All right. This does feel intuitive when I stop to think about it. If you're taller, maybe you just have more gut, longer intestines, and therefore more space for a complex ecosystem. Yeah? Yeah, that that was one possible explanation the research team came up with, too. And for taller people, it's actually pretty good news, as a more diverse microbiome may protect against some infections. I stand at a mighty five feet tall, as you know, Tim, (laughs) which is not exactly in the upper human height percentile. So should I be worried about my microbes? No, thankfully not. So the researchers, they also found evidence that high fiber diets can offset the risk of a slightly less diverse microbiome. All right. Eat more vegetables. Got it. (laughs) Um, But before I go make that giant salad for my microbiome, let's talk about space. Reporter Leah Crane has been following the saga of Harvard scientist Avi Loeb, who sampled the seafloor near Papua New Guinea to look for the remains of a meteor that fell to Earth in 2014. His team found hundreds of tiny, iron-rich little spherules, and he says the mineral composition of five of them may indicate that they came from the meteor nicknamed IM-1, and that IM-1, again, because of the composition of these spherules, 
is from beyond our solar system. Yeah, this is such a tantalizing story. If I remember that uh, IM1, it stands for Interstellar Meteor. And Loeb and his team, they think that the velocity at which it entered our solar system and then hurled down to Earth suggests that it came from somewhere outside our solar system elsewhere in the galaxy. Right. All of these are things Loeb has asserted. This is true. But there is quite a bit of doubt in the scientific community. Even the five, quote, weird spherules might not be as weird as he claims. So the mineral composition he said doesn't match any materials ever sampled in our solar system, including Earth, the moon, or Mars. But there's a lot out there that we haven't sampled. So he just may not have eliminated enough other explanations. On top of that, there's also some doubt that IM-1 even had the sort of special interstellar velocities that Loeb claims. His original publication of that data didn't include error bars, for example, and so there's not really a good way to check his work. So while this could be a really exciting view of materials from outside our little corner of the galaxy, it could also be something much more ordinary. We'll keep an eye on that one for sure and let you know if we find out any more. So one final one from me. Um, Christy, what's a pirate's favorite arachnid? Uh, <laughs> that that was arachnid, if you couldn't arachnid. tell. Okay. Um, I don't know. I, let me think about this. Is it like a tarantula? <laughs> uh, we really can't carry on with this, but I, <laughs> I'm afraid it's actually the pirate spider, or spider, as people might say. Okay, but that's not really how that joke format works, Tim, and... <laughs> For that, I sentence you to walk the plank. All right. Very well. I shall stop. Maharty. (laughs) So I'm going to stop now with the pirating because there's actually a very cool story that made me ask these silly questions in the first place. (laughs) So pirate spiders, they're a group of about 200 spider species who prey on other spiders. And they do this by going up to their webs, giving the webs a little tug and then fooling the other spiders into thinking they have a fly when it's actually a spider that's going to eat them. And it's kind of like if you were on a military ship about to attack a much weaker ship in distress, only to find out that the weaker ship was actually a secret military ship. Something I learned recently is that this is an actual strategy that navies used during World War I and II, sending out decoy boats that looked like cargo vessels, and it turned out they were actually very heavily armed. So that's what these spiders are doing. Yeah, that's what most pirate spiders do. But there's this one very special species that has just been observed called Jelana sequiras, and that one... Those spiders, they don't just pretend to be a fly on another spider's web, but instead they make an entire trap. I'm interested. Keep going. So picture this. You're a web-building spider in Costa Rica, and you're looking for something sturdy to attach your web to. You're trundling along the forest floor, and then suddenly there's just a very appealing, perfect, long silk line dangling towards the forest floor. And you just think, well, why don't I build my web on that? Wouldn't that be perfect? Except... The moment you do that, Jelana Sequiras, it knows because it's got a web above you. And those little dangly bits of web, well, those are traps, little two meter long scaffolding lines. And as soon as you touch them, well, you're spider food. Better than shark food, I guess. (laughs) I guess so. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening and bearing with us on the pirate jokes. (laughs) As always, our show notes have links to all the stories you heard about today. You can subscribe to our show on whatever app you're listening on. And we really hope that you enjoy this podcast. And if you do, please consider leaving us a rating or a review. It really helps others find us. And of course, it's great for team morale. (laughs) Thank you. And bye for now. Bye.
This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.